Good morning and Happy New Year. And uh, to those at home, hope you're uh, staying cool. Just uh, we're going to be talking a bit about history, God and history today. And I'd just uh, like to start with Psalm 33, and then uh, join me as I pray. So Psalm 33, sing joyfully to the Lord. We did that this morning, didn't we? Well, they were a rocky band. Let's talk about the difference. You saw the uh, the pipe organ in the back, but uh, we didn't didn't hear that play, I don't think. But did we? Anyway, so sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It's fitting for the upright to praise Him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to them on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters into, of the sea into jars, and he puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth, he who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army, no warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. And join me as I pray now. Lord, thank you for your word. Eternal God who made the heavens and the earth, we come before you this morning to worship you and acknowledge your greatness and power. In recent days, Lord, we've celebrated the revealing of yourself as Emmanuel, God with us. We no longer have to guess what you are like but you've shown yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, since time began, you've wanted a people to be in loving relationship with you and have had a plan and a purpose throughout history for each generation to come to know you and to love you. St Paul records in, in the book of Acts, for from one man he made all the nations that they should inherit, inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. For God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now, Lord, as we stand at the beginning of a new year, there is again the opportunity to follow you and trust you despite the difficulties. Help us, Lord as we consider the many major challenges that face us, 
of plagues and famine, of war and floods and drought and greed and corruption and more. But we are comforted by the fact that you, Lord Jesus, warn us of them. But you, our God alone, knows whether these are the final days of this world. But what is certain, it is the final days of this, our generation. As each generation fades into history, you alone are eternal. And all of us in this generation must give account of our lives to you. In the words of King Jehoshaphat of Judah hundreds of years ago, when surrounded with overwhelming circumstances, he prayed, For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Help us this year to keep our eyes on you, to trust you, and not be overcome by fear, and to know that you have a plan to reach out to everyone and to those who trust in you. Your promise is to bring them safely home to an eternal kingdom. Thank you that you reach out to every generation with your love and grace. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Just to start, to give you a few tips, um, this message has come out of a study I did over one to two years. So I had to, to condense this study to just a few short pages when actually it was a really big journal. And so I can only make all the points briefly in order to be able to fit them in. And the scriptures that I quote, most of them are left out of the overhead because time does not permit. But I have a full um, script of the message, so if anyone would like to um, have it, just let me know. I know how to use a clicker now. <laughs> Dave showed me how to use it. All right. I would like to show you four parts of a famous painting. And can you identify which painting this is? Give you a clue. That help? Another part. Let me give you another part. Does that give you a hint? Judy, Judy and Mike got a bit, got a... A glimpse of a part gives you a little bit of a sense of the whole. That one? Another part? Well, this is what the picture is. Vermeer's favourite, favorite, famous um, girl with a pearl earring. It's the same with the Gospels. If we focus on the various parts, we won't see the big picture. Over the years, I have always approached the Gospels with a sense of overwhelm. So much information, so many parts. I would rush through the Gospels, assuming that I had understood the various parts, and then look forward to getting to the meaty parts of Pauline theology. A few years ago, I decided to have a rethink and a fresh look at what the Gospels are all about. Can we take that picture off the screen for a moment, Dave? Is that possible? Thanks. Um, yeah, so I decided to have a rethink and a fresh look at what the Gospels are really all about. What are they really saying? 
The whole message seemed much greater than the sum of all the parts of which I was so familiar. It's been so easy to fit them into the context of ideas and beliefs that I'd gathered from other sources. On my journey of faith, I spent some time in the Lutheran tradition. The Lutheran creed, like many great traditional creeds, when they refer to Jesus, passed directly from his virgin birth to his suffering and death. The four Gospels don't. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John seem to think that it's hugely important that they tell us a great deal about what Jesus did between the time of his birth and the time of his death. In particular, they talk about what we might call his kingdom inaugurating work, the deeds and the words that declared that God's kingdom was coming then and there in some sense or other on earth as in heaven. The Gospels speak a good deal about the kingdom of God. I came to see that the whole point of the Gospels is to tell the story of how Jesus became king on earth as in heaven. God has become king in and through Jesus. Jesus is now the rightful Lord and all other lords are to fall at his feet. And this is what was supposed to happen when Israel's hopes were fulfilled. And Israel's hopes were not for the demise of the space-time universe, but for the earth to be full of the glory of God. Wasn't the kingdom of God something having to do with the end of the world? And since that happened, aren't we justified in looking at things differently? What was the point of the healings and the feastings? the Sermon on the Mount and the controversies with the Pharisees, the stilling of the storm and so on, all the rich material that the Gospels offer us between Jesus' birth, or at least his baptism, and his trial and death. So what are the Gospels all about? I was surprised at the huge amount of books that are written on this subject. A number of theologians agree that there are inadequate answers floating around mainstream Christian churches as to what the Gospels are really all about. In my Bible reading, research and personal study, I began to see the bigger picture, which filled me with joy and excitement. It has given me a new passion for the things of God. Let's take a few moments to look at some of the inadequate answers as to what the Gospels are about. One inadequate answer is that Jesus came to teach people how to go to heaven. It's important to not misunderstand this. The whole New Testament assumes God has a wonderful future for his people after bodily death, climaxing in the new world of the resurrection of the new heavens and the new earth. But this is not what the four Gospels are about. It has been argued that the problem has arisen mainly because for many centuries Christians have assumed that the whole point of Christian faith is to go to heaven, so they've read everything in that light. It would be fair to say that many readers, when they hear Matthew's Jesus talking about this or that, so that you may enter the kingdom of heaven, Assume without giving it a moment's thought that this means so that you may go to heaven when you die. Think of the Lord's Prayer. 
which comes at the centre of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And at the centre of the prayer itself, we find Jesus teaching his followers to pray that God's kingdom might come and his will be done on earth as in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not about people going to heaven. It is about the rule of heaven coming to earth. When Matthew has his Jesus talking about heaven's kingdom, he means the God of heaven is establishing his sovereign rule, not just in heaven, but on earth as well. Another expression that is argued as being commonly misunderstood in this, connect, in this connection is eternal life. The word eternity in modern English has commonly been used only to point to a heavenly destination, but to say something specific about it, namely that it will be somehow outside time and probably outside space and matter as well, a disembodied, timeless eternity. That sounds more like Plato to me than the Bible. When we find the word... Can we put that image... Yeah, here we go. So when we find the word Zoe Aeonia, Zoe Aeonius in the Gospels, and when it is translated as eternal life or everlasting life, people have naturally assumed that this concept of eternity is the right way to understand it. God so loved the world, reads the famous text in the King James Version of John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have an everlasting life. We could say, there it is. This is the biblical promise of a timeless and heavenly bliss. But it isn't. In many places, the word Zoe Aeonius is used in the Gospels to refer to one aspect of an ancient Jewish belief about how time was divided up. In, in this slide, there are two eons or ages, the present age, ha-olam ha and the age to come, ha-olam haba. The, the age to come, many Jews believe, would arrive one day to bring God's justice, peace and healing to the world as it groaned and toiled within the present age. You can see Paul, for instance, referring to this idea in Ephesians 1 verse 21 where he talks about Jesus being raised and seated in heavenly realms not only in the present age but also in the age to come. Also in Galatians 1 verse 4 where Paul speaks of Jesus giving himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. In this way, by rescuing us from the present evil age, he has ushered in the age to come. But there is no sense that this age to come is eternal in the sense of being outside space, time and matter. Far from it. For the ancient Jews, God's great future purpose was not to rescue people out of the world, but to rescue the world itself people included, from its present corruption and decay. If we reframe our thinking within this background, the word Zoe Aeonius will refer to the life of the age to come. In other words, the life... Yeah, it will refer to the life of the age. In other words, the life of the age to come. 
when in Luke, the rich young ruler asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He isn't asking about how to go to heaven when he dies. He is asking about the new world that God is going to usher in, the new era of justice, peace and freedom that God has promised his people. And he is asking in particular how he can be sure that when God does all this, he will be part of those who who inherit the new world, who share its life. This is why in some translations of the Bible, Luke 18 verse 18 is translated, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit the life of the age to come? Likewise, John 3 verse 16 ends not with have everlasting life, but share in the life of God's new age. The result of this misreading has been to make all the material in in Jesus' public life refer somehow to a supposed invitation to go to heaven rather than the kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. Another popular approach to the material in the middle of the Gospels is to understand it in the terms of Jesus' teaching, particularly about what we call ethics or how to behave. The Sermon on the Mount is often referred to as some kind of manifesto. Jesus was undoubtedly a teacher, but the meanings that we normally associate with Jesus don't come close to the reality we find in the Gospels. Jesus was announcing that a whole new world was being born and he was teaching people how to live within that whole new world. To that extent, we should both embrace the idea of him as a teacher while radically modifying it. We only understand the point of teaching when we understand the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing. The idea of Jesus as teacher is sometimes even elaborated even further and Jesus is seen as a moral exemplar. Jesus came, many have said, to show us the way to how it's done. Again and again in the Gospels, we find Jesus is not in fact holding himself up as an example to follow. Yes, there are times when he does say something like that. He's taking up his cross and, to, and his followers are to take up theirs. And he expects them to share his faith and pray the way he prayed himself. Ultimately, he tells them that as the Father sent him, so he is sending them. So there is an element of imitation involved. But it's within a framework where Jesus is not simply an example to copy, but the one who's doing something new that will change the way things are for everybody else. But all this fails to come anywhere close to a satisfying account of the whole. Another inadequate answer takes quite a different track. It's often thought that we can identify with characters in the story and find our own story by seeing what happened to them. Well, there's quite a lot in that. Getting inside the stories in the Gospels is indeed an excellent way of coming to understand Jesus better and allowing the power of his life to transform our own. But this is hardly a satisfaction, a satisfactory answer of why Matthew, Mark, Luke and John wrote the books they did. The question we have to face about the Gospels is, is the question of where are they going, not simply the various things we can use them for along the way. 
Another standard line often used is to say that the Gospels were written to demonstrate the divinity of Jesus. This appears to be what many Christians regard as the Gospels' principal purpose. For many centuries, the main thing people wanted to say about Jesus was that he was fully human and fully divine. And so it's once more assumed that this is what must have been what the Gospels were really trying to say. When did people start talking about Jesus' humanity and divinity? It's well argued it wasn't in the first century. Though the Gospels tell of Jesus doing remarkable things on one hand and behaving like another, like an ordinary human being on the other, the Gospels do not appear to be written to prove that point. Sometimes people will say that the Gospels in telling the story of Jesus show us who God really is. That seems a bit more like it. Look at Jesus and you see the human face of God. But even that doesn't get us far enough because John at once goes on, as do all the four Gospels, to tell us what this embodied God is now up to. It isn't enough to know that Jesus is in some sense divine. The question is, which God are we talking about? What is he now doing and why and what does it mean? As the point will be, it isn't only John who presupposes that in Jesus we see the living embodiment of the God of Israel returning at last to visit and redeem his people. The point is not that the Gospels don't think of Jesus as divine, but this isn't the main thing they are most eager to get across. They presuppose it. The point is not whether Jesus is God, but what God is doing in and through Jesus. This Jesus is the Messiah. In this man and in him alone, we see the way the living God is establishing his kingdom, spoken of in Psalm 2. John has written his book to show that it is Jesus and his death and resurrection that Israel's God has done what he promised he would do in and through Israel's anointed king and has in this way fully and finally revealed who he really is. It's easy to go to the Gospels with the wrong questions and have found answers of a sort to those questions. The challenge now is to accept what we may have misunderstood and to find a way of putting this right. A good way to start is to look at the central text. Time obviously doesn't allow this. I'd be here for another week. But we can take a brief overview. The four Gospels present themselves as the climax of the story of Israel. Israel's ancient scriptures are framed with a narrative of a certain shape and type. Reading through the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, there is a sense that this story is supposed to be going somewhere, but that it hasn't got there yet. It's an unfinished narrative, an unfinished agenda. Things are supposed to happen that haven't happened yet. And what's more, the story seems to have got stalled. The problem is we have all read the Gospels, if not careful, simply as God's answer to the plight of the human race in general. The implied backstory hasn't been the story of Abraham, of Moses, of David, of the prophets. It's been the story of Adam and Eve, of every man sinning and dying and needing to be redeemed. Israel's story sneaks along 
side in order mainly to offer some advance promises, some hints, some signposts along the way. When we turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we discover that they at least think it's important to retell the history of Israel and to show that the story of Jesus is the story in which that long history, warts and all, reaches its God-ordained climax. Matthew is telling in his story in such a way as to say, this is it, this is what we've been waiting for, even though we would never have thought it would be like this. The gospel writers saw the events concerning Jesus, particularly his kingdom inaugurating life, death and resurrection, not just as isolated events to which remote prophets might have distantly pointed. They saw those events as bringing the long story of Israel to its proper goal. But we may ask, what's the point of telling the story of Jesus as the climax of the story of Israel? What relevance has that got to do with the rest of the human race? I believe it is so important to understand this point. In Israel's scriptures, the reason Israel's story matters is that the creator of the world has chosen and called Israel to be the people through whom he will redeem the world. What God does for Israel is what God is doing in relation to the whole world. This is what it meant to be Israel, to be the people who, for better or worse, carried the destiny of the world on their shoulders. The call of Abraham is the beginning of the answer to the sin of Adam. In the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham to leave his people and country and go to a new land. God tells Abraham he will make him into a great nation and that all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. Matthew finds it important to start his gospel with a very long record of the genealogy of Jesus. Sorry about that, tongue twister. He begins with Abraham, the father of Isaac, and 52 generations later, he ends with Joseph, Joseph, the father of Jesus, who is called Christ. The evangelists, each in his own way, tell the story of Jesus as the proper climax to Israel's story. Mark picks up throughout his gospel a major theme from the ancient Hebrew scriptures that when Israel's God acts in fulfilment of his ancient promises, he will do so in dramatic and radically new ways. It doesn't mean that we can see a smooth, easy line from the ancient text to the modern fulfilment. Jesus is fulfilling the story of Israel, even though this may call for us to understand Israel's story in a new way. Jesus' followers cannot begin to see in the strange events of his arrest, trial and death any kind of fulfilment. We were hoping, say the two on the road to Emmaus, that he was going to redeem Israel. The answer highlighted in Luke's beautiful telling, both of the the Emmaus story and of the larger story of Jesus as a whole, is clear. You are so senseless, Jesus said to them, so slow in your hearts to believe all the things the prophet said to you. Don't you see? This had to happen. The Messiah had to suffer and then come into his glory. 
So Jesus began with Moses and with all the prophets and explained to them the things about himself throughout the whole Bible. Luke is clear that the events involving Jesus are the events in which all of Israel's previous history has been summed up and brought to its divinely appointed goal. The the point the Gospels writers are eager to get across is that the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is in fact the climax of the story of Israel, even though nobody was expecting such a thing and many didn't like the look of it when it was presented to them. It's something like the risen Jesus himself is visible to the eye of faith. The story makes sense or not at all. Jesus' final word, tetelestai, it is finished, says it clearly. The story has been completed. The story of creation, the story of God's covenant with Israel. Now, new creation can begin, as it does immediately after, afterwards with Jesus' resurrection. Now the new covenant can be launched as the disciples are sent out into the world equipped with Jesus' own spirit. Israel's story was not just a story of a people. It was the story of a God, the one the Israelites believed was God, the creator of the world, the God of Israel. There are so many more things we could consider, so many more, but time does not permit Things such as the beautiful messianic promises of the Old Testament, such as my favourite, which is recorded in Ezekiel 34, verse 2 to 6. This passage tells where the shepherds of Israel are not taking care of their people. They They haven't strengthened the weak and they haven't healed the sick. They have not brought back the strays or gone to search for the lost. They've ruled over them harshly so that they've become scattered because there was no shepherd. Then God said he would look after them and God promised he would put one shepherd over them. Jesus takes this up in John 10 verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. That's just one of many amazing messianic promises in the Old Testament. Like me, you're probably left with questions. One question that I had was, why did the Jews reject the Messiah? The Jews have been expecting the Messiah to come for over a thousand years. They were preaching about it in every week in the synagogue. Yet when, that, yet when he came, they rejected him. Why? With all the miracles that Jesus performed, with all of his preaching and teaching, Why was it that he could not turn the Jewish nation around? In answering this, Peter is kind. When in Acts 3 verse 17, he says, The leaders acted in ignorance. The same thought is found in Acts 13 verse 27, when Paul says, They did not recognize him, nor did they understand the utterances of the prophets. Paul even goes so far as to hint that the rulers could not know Jesus because their minds were closed. Ignorance does not remove their responsibility. It only explains one of the reasons for their actions. Another question we may have is, where do the Gentiles fit in the kingdom of God? Paul was dramatically called by God to bring God's plan of salvation to the Gentiles. 
Let me just get back to there. There we go. In Romans 1 verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Paul elaborates this further in Romans 2 verse 11 when he says, God shows no favoritism. He loves us all equally. We are all part of God's eternal plan and we all have a place in his kingdom. Revelation 13 verse 8 shows us that the Lamb of God was slain from the creation of the world for all who would believe in him as the promised Messiah. They would find their names written in the book of life. I just want to add something because when I got up this morning I was listening to a bunch of my favourite theologians having their, their normal discussions and this subject actually came in, came up. And they brought up a scripture which really spoke to me about um, about the, the Jews and the Gentiles. And so what Paul's trying to say is that we, the Jews and Gentiles, were one in Christ. And Paul is addressing the, the Gentiles in Ephesians 2 verse 11 to 16. And this is what he says. Remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross." think that's a beautiful verse. I find my, found myself wondering, will the Jewish people recognise Jesus at his second coming? And I found the answer in Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 where he prophesies that the Messiah will be revealed to Israel. Jesus will pour out his spirit of grace on them and they shall look upon him whom they have pierced and they will repent and weep bitterly. It's interesting to note that there are an estimated 325,000 Messianic Jews in the world today. To listen to a Messianic Jewish rabbi preach about Jesus is one of the most moving things that I've ever experienced. Another question, where's the kingdom of God right now? Well, Jesus tells us no one can say here it is or there it is because the kingdom is within you. God is ruling in the hearts of his people by the power of his spirit. As we have already seen, Jesus has brought the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus was inaugurating the kingdom as he changed the hearts of men one at a time. And the kingdom of God keeps advancing. How? Well, Jesus sent his disciples to go into all the world to preach the good news of the kingdom to everyone. We have the same call today to preach the gospel, thereby gathering souls into God's kingdom. Also, when Jesus ascended after his resurrection, he gave gifts to men to prepare God's people for works of service in his kingdom. In this way, building the body of Christ until we reach a unity and become spiritually mature. Jesus' disciples were empowered by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost 
And today, Jesus pours his Holy Spirit into everyone who believes. If you have chosen to believe and accept that Jesus Christ died for your sins and are willing to give your life to him, then from that moment, his Spirit will come and reside in you. The greatest mystery, the Bible says, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is this hope of glory? The hope of glory is the fulfilment of God's promise to restore us and all creation. When will we see this fulfilment? Jesus told us that it would be not be until the kingdom of God will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Lastly, when God's kingdom comes in all its fullness, what will it look like? The beginning of chapter 21 in the book of Revelation, we find this answer. John prophesies, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out, out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. How exciting is it to be part of God's eternal plan? This amazing eternal plan that's been going on for so, so long and we find ourselves in the midst of it. I find that so exciting. I'll leave you with a, a video clip. It just shows Paul Wickham being very excited about exactly this. How I long to breathe the air of heaven Where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets To look upon the one who bled to save me And walk with him for all eternity Well, that brings us to an end of the service this morning. Thank you so much, Willie, for your insights and just the great message. Uh, expect the unexpected when you read the Bible. Uh, and it's a great time of the year to start a reading plan or get your uh, head into the scriptures. I'm trying to do that with my family this year. You can keep me accountable and uh, come and challenge me, uh, make sure I keep that up. But um, yeah, look, just thanks again for joining us this morning. Thanks to those who joined online. I'm just going to close now in prayer. Thank you, Father, just uh, for the depth of, of who you are and what you've done. And as Willie said, that your kingdom is in our hearts, that we are uh, participating in what you're doing now and uh, have a free invitation to be with you and, and to outwork what you're doing, Lord, um, through the cross and through your Gospels. Father, just thank you so much for uh, this church and these people. We pray as we go out this year. Uh, 
that we'll put our eyes on you, Jesus, that we will forever submit ourselves to you and uh, have our strength drawn from you, the living waters, from a deep well. And uh, we just bless you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks, folks. Uh, If you need prayer, we have our prayer room, of course. There's no coffee today, um, but please say hi, have a chat with someone. But yeah, bless you as you go forward. And don't forget, outside is open.